Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. I'm introducing our... um, Esteemed fellow guest here, Chase Boudin. He's the elected district attorney of San Francisco. Um, I was lucky enough to walk with him in the last Women's March. That was just, we can't even remember because time is flying. Just a few weeks ago, a month, two months ago, um, we high-fived. I was like, you want to be on a podcast called Bitch Talk? And he's like, yes, here's my card. And I was like, word. So here he is, <laughs> excited to have him on the show. And, you know, our first question out the gate, Chessa, is just, who are you? Where are you from? Um, can you talk a little bit about your your background and your life growing up in, I think it was Chicago? And then the other half of that question is, why did you run for DA of San Francisco? Well, Aaron, uh, definitely good to see you again. The Women's March was, as it usually is, a, a beautiful and inspiring moment. Um, a lot of people, diverse communities coming together uh, around common purpose and common cause for such a critical issue. And um, I don't I don't think we could have predicted just how quickly uh, when you and I met that day, how quickly we would see women's right to choose under a very, very real threat um, in, in the form of this most recent argument in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and I think we all see the writing on the wall and we've got our work cut out for us when it comes to um, women's rights mm-hmm. in this country. Um, but let me let me answer your question, which is, who am I? Um, <laughs> gosh, I don't know if I can, can I limit myself to like three words and like I am. No. <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> I, so I, I was, uh, I, I was born in New York. I, I did grow up mostly in Chicago, spent my summers in San Francisco and Northern California. Um, when I was born, I had no idea who, who my parents were or what they were up to. But uh, about a year after I was born, my parents dropped me at the babysitter and went off to participate in an armed robbery that left three men dead. Two police officers and a security guard were shot and killed that day. My parents were unarmed. They weren't even at the scene of the robbery itself. They were driving a switch car. And I was playing with the babysitter. I had no idea what was going on when my parents never came back to get me. My mom ended up serving 22 years in prison. My father served more than 40 years before he was released a little over a month ago. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember their arrest. I don't remember them getting sentenced by the judge a couple of years later. My earliest memories are waiting in lines, mostly of black and brown women and children, to get into jails and prisons to visit my parents with so many other families that were impacted by, torn apart by this country's uh, addiction to incarceration. And as a result, before I even had a sense of politics or political identity, um, I had a really personal awareness of the failings of our approach to crime and punishment. I understood that we were investing limitless resources in building jails and prisons and failing to invest in healing those that have been harmed by crime or to invest in the communities where crimes are occurring in ways that can actually prevent crime in the first place, right? Uh, Healthcare, education, housing, mental health treatment, the kinds of things that are 
easily and readily available to folks with resources and to folks who live in privileged communities. We as a society have made a decision over the last 40, 50 plus years that what's good enough for Hollywood actors who suffer from drug addiction and do crazy things is not good enough for poor people in poor black and brown communities. And the result is that both victims are being treated as pieces of evidence to secure lengthy prison sentences, but not given any meaningful support. And families are being put into this system that generates intergenerational cycles of incarceration. And so I started working on these issues from the time I was in middle school and high school, eventually became a lawyer and wanted to fight to end mass incarceration. I saw the harm it was causing to our communities. I saw the ways it was bankrupting local governments. And at the time I went to law school, um, the best way to fight against mass incarceration was to be a public defender. So I joined the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. And over the next several years, as I fought one case at a time, as I ensured that my clients' due process rights were being met, I saw a system that was rigged. I saw a system that was unjust, that provided one kind of justice for the rich and powerful and another kind for poor people of color. And it was frustrating to see professionally what I'd experienced personally my whole life, which was a system set up to perpetuate crime and punishment, not to break that cycle. And around that same time, you know, I started doing impact litigation work, fighting to end money bail, started doing uh, policy advocacy, fighting to ensure San Francisco would not cooperate with ICE, uh, hand over immigrants to ICE. And around that time, there was a, a rise of a national movement, a progressive prosecutor movement, based on a recognition for the first time in any of our lifetimes that we needed systemic change, that we needed a different approach to crime and punishment. One that was focused on addressing root causes of crime, things like addiction and, and housing and mental illness, rather than simply waiting for crime to occur and punishing the symptoms of all these broader social failings. I saw that movement. I was inspired by it. And um, I decided in the context of San Francisco's first open district attorney's race, in other words, the first race in 110 years in San Francisco with no incumbent listed on the ballot, I decided that uh, it was important for the progressive prosecutor movement for the kind of systemic reform vision that I had based on my personal and professional experience to be part of the conversation. And I was tremendously humbled when in November of 2019, the voters of San Francisco elected me as their district attorney. Yeah, um, our, our listeners are heavily based in the Bay, obviously, but um, for those that are not, uh, that are listening from all around the world, um, you're, you're facing a recall in, in June of, of 22 of, of next year. Um, but I think that um, what's really important, especially for ourselves and our listeners, are what is the job of the district attorney? What are your roles? What are you responsible for? And, and sort of, um, you know, the dance that you do with, with the SFPD, because I feel like a lot of times what you get blamed for and what you get accused for is, is something that isn't even part of your job. So can you just explain what your job is, what you have control over, and what, what you sort, sort of depend on others, you know, in terms of, of getting things done? Absolutely, Angie. Thanks for that question. You know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about who does what in the criminal legal system. Um, let me kind of walk you through the life cycle of a case. Um, let's say that someone breaks into a store and calls 911, uh, so a neighbor sees it and calls 911. 
So the, the first step is that somebody in the community who sees a crime in progress has to step up and report it to the police. Now, if, if that happens, um, it's the police that respond. It's not the district attorney or the sheriff, right? It's the San Francisco Police Department responsible for responding to 911 calls. Once the police respond, it's their job to investigate what happened. Did a crime occur? Who committed it? What's the evidence that they committed it? In the cases where police make an arrest and have evidence that a crime was committed by the person they arrested, they bring those cases to the district attorney. In other words, it's only that slice, really small slice of the pie where reported crimes result in an arrest. And in San Francisco right now, it's about 10% of overall reported crimes that result in an arrest. So in the other 90% of reported crimes, my office doesn't even know what happened. We're not involved. Nobody notifies us. We don't have any way or opportunity to intervene. In the 10% or so where police do make an arrest, then they present the case to us. My lawyers in the district attorney's office evaluate the police investigation. And in those cases where there's missing evidence, we tell the police, hey, we need you to do more research, more investigation. In other cases, we look at their investigation and we say, yes, this this was a commercial burglary and we're going to file charges. So once we file charges, it's then up to the judge to decide if the person accused should stay in jail, should be released, if so, on what conditions. And the lawyers on both sides make arguments about that. A public defender usually gets appointed to defend the person accused. Um, the sheriff runs the courtrooms and the jail. The probation and parole division supervise people who have already been convicted of a crime and are on various forms of post-conviction supervision. So all of us play a role. Uh, but you're right. In San Francisco, there's been a lot of folks blaming me and my office for things that are not in our job, things like whether or not police respond quickly or make an arrest or mm -hmm. whether police speak the languages of crime victims. Um, we know that often police um, are not responding in ways that make people feel safe. We know that whether it's a question of resource allocation, whether it's a question of language skill, whether it's a question of priorities, um, people who call for help from the police are often not receiving exactly what they want. And um, my office would love to be in a position to intervene in more cases where crimes have occurred, to use all the tools in our tool belt to hold people accountable, whether that means mandating drug treatment or mental health counseling, whether it means um, asset forfeiture to get uh, stolen property back to the folks it was stolen from. Uh, we have a tremendously diverse set of tools. We can't use them uh, for the most part until and unless police make an arrest. We might write that all down, like in our caption of, of this <laughs> of this conversation on our Instagram. It's like it, it's like a flowchart. Yes, it's like this is what his office does. Um, you are being recalled. How do you even balance any of this with the actual work you and your office has to do on a daily basis? First of all, let's be really clear about who's behind the recall and why. The San Francisco Republican Party has endorsed the recall. The San Francisco Democratic Party has opposed it. The people funding the recall are major national Republican donors, billionaire venture capitalists and investment bankers. Um, the folks funding the fight against it are grassroots community organizers, uh, small dollar donors, and community groups like the San Francisco Rising Action Fund, who just did an event 
with me this morning, folks that represent our diverse BIPOC communities. Um, why are they doing the repo? Well, primarily because I ran on a platform that was explicitly focused on change, on challenging the status quo, on ensuring that the rich and powerful, the white and privileged can't literally get away with murder. And sure enough, we filed the first ever homicide charges against San Francisco police department officers who, while on duty, shot and killed unarmed black men. In one case, they shot and killed an unarmed black man who was on the steps to his own home, unarmed. We also created a worker protection unit that is enforcing employment laws, labor laws, that has sued multiple gig economy companies whose business model depends on systematically misclassifying their employees and calling them independent contractors simply to avoid paying minimum wage and worker compensation and unemployment insurance. And when you start doing things like that, when you start showing that we can build safer communities, not only by throwing young black and brown men in jail, but also by suing the manufacturers of ghost guns who are profiting off of our community's pain. Um, those kinds of systemic changes that I'm implementing, fulfilling promises I made on the campaign trail to hold the powerful accountable, to attack public safety issues at the root instead of simply waiting for the symptoms to manifest and, and, and punishing people as a way to um, cover up problems and not actually solve them. Um, we are trying in every way we can to focus on policies that heal, that prevent, and that enforce laws equally. And that is tremendously threatening to some very rich and very powerful people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's look at who's opposing the recall. Let's see who, you know, where are the lines drawn? We've got the Republican Party and the billionaires supporting the recall. We've got the San Francisco Democratic Party opposing it. We've got the ACLU of Northern California opposing it. We've got the Sierra Club opposing it. And we've got every major labor group that's taken a position on the recall opposing it. We've got currently and formerly elected officials in San Francisco from all different uh, backgrounds and walks of life opposing the recall. Um, and the folks who are supporting it are basically nameless uh, billionaires who are funding it through dark money political action committees. Yeah, I was, I, really quick, I just wanted to add to that, doing a lot of research prior to this interview, you do see who's spearheading the second wave. And it's very interesting to see who these people are. I'll leave it at that because anyone can Google it. It's really literally right there. <laughs> Well, and that is just, yeah, that is just such an important note about this moment is now we're so quick to let's recall, let's recall. Like for San Francisco elections, there's a $500 cap on any donations, but with a recall, there is no limit. And that is so mm -hmm. dangerous. And it's not something to take lightly. Like, let's just recall everyone. It's just a dangerous precedent to, to set. So anyway, um, just trying to move forward because we, we uh, don't have a lot of time here. So um, a lot of things that I hear from people, people that I respect, people that are educated, you know, I think we're like-minded that still are kind of on this train of, yes, we need to recall, look at how dangerous our city is now. Mm -hmm. This is Chessa, San Francisco. They're talking about car break-ins. They're talking about shoplifting. Um, uh, but a lot of times, you know, the numbers, the statistics that we're seeing, like, can, can you just explain the, the real statistics? What are the real statistics to you? Where should we be looking for this information? And what is your response to that in, in regards to, because that's what a lot of just everyday San Franciscans who don't know the broader picture of these major changes that you're making, they're talking about car car theft and, and shoplifting. 
Well, first of all, the the facts are really important. And, and let's remember the context. We're living through a moment where, thanks in large part to Donald Trump and a lot of his <laughs> allies, facts don't seem to matter to a lot of people. We've got a third of the country that thinks Donald Trump won the election last year. We've got uh, about nearly half the country that thinks vaccines are bad for you, right? And so science is out the window for a lot of people. Data, empirical evidence is out the window. For me and for my policies, we are always going to be grounded in data. We are always going to be listening to what the trends are. We're going to look at empirical evidence. And when it comes to safety in San Francisco, there is no question we have a lot of work to do. These are not new problems. San Francisco has led the country in property crime for over a decade. That's not a result of any policy I implemented. That's not a result of any change we made. And the truth is, overall crime is actually down since I took office. Now, I'm not taking credit for that. Look, we lived through a global pandemic that changed everything about how we live our lives, how we do business, tourism and commuting to work and eating out. All those things have changed dramatically. And so have crime trends. I would love to sit here and take credit for the fact that overall crime fell 20% in 2020 compared to 2019. But that's not fair. That's not realistic given how significant the pandemic was. So why is it fair for those folks to blame me for the categories of crime that went up, right? That's what they're trying to do. They are cherry picking individual uh, statistics to suggest in contrast to what the actual evidence shows that crime is out of control. Now, I want to be clear. If you are a victim of crime, it doesn't matter what the statistics show. If your car was broken into or your garage was broken into, then we have more work to do to keep you safe. However, we also need to look at big picture data. And what it shows is that in 2020, for example, robberies were down about 22%. That's the most common violent crime San Francisco experiences, down 22%. This year, 2021, robberies are down another 5%. So overall, crime is actually not up. But yes, we have a serious problem with commercial burglaries, with car break-ins, with petty theft. And those are areas where I'm really proud of my record. Look, the fundamental tool that I have is to file charges when police bring me cases. And let's look at commercial burglaries. Right now, if you want to do a comparison, it's 86 to 10. What do I mean by that? 86 to 10. 86% of the time police bring me a commercial burglary case, we file charges to hold whoever did it accountable. 10% of the time, a commercial burglary gets reported to police, an arrest is made that my office can take action on. So if folks are concerned about crime, if folks want to see more consequences or more deterrence, and, and let's be clear, the deterrence theory of criminal justice has lots of limitations. But if we want to see deterrence, the single most important thing we can do is increase the certainty of arrest. All of the data shows that if people think they will get arrested, they're less likely to commit a crime. What happens after the arrest doesn't matter. And that's why death penalty is not an effective deterrent. There's, there, there could be no more powerful deterrent if that really worked, no more powerful punishment to deter if punishment deterred than the death penalty. And yet you can look at jurisdictions across this country throughout history where they've had the death penalty and then eliminated it or didn't have it and then reinstated it. It does not have a meaningful effect on crimes that are eligible for the death penalty because people who commit those crimes don't believe they're going to get caught. The same thing is true with property crime. 98% of auto burglaries in San Francisco never result in an arrest. So if we want more punishment, if that's what people are calling for who support the recall, then they should focus on ensuring that police are in a position to make more arrests and bring my office better cases so that we can intervene. 
if right now about uh, 15 out of every 16 reported property crimes will never result in an arrest. I have to say I'm at fault too, because uh, my car has been broken into every few years and I haven't reported it. And, you know, we need to report these things. Um, and so I'm, I'm at fault too. And, and I, um, I, I learned, and I would like our listeners to know if you see a cop walking down the street, you can report a crime to them there. You don't even have to go directly to um, the headquarters. Is that, is that true? That's correct. That's right. And, and actually- I didn't know that because a lot of times I'm like, Oh, I don't have time to go, but you know, you see cops all the time walking in the neighborhoods. At least I do. So, yeah, yeah that's good to sure. know. But 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 don't blame yourself. Victims are not to blame here. Um, it is important to report crime. Uh, there there are reasons why some people don't report crime. Um, but definitely don't blame yourself if you're a victim. And I'm really sorry to hear about your car getting broken into. I know that's a a, a really common experience. My car has been broken into a few times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a lot of creative work to try and. Um, find more effective ways to prevent that kind of thing. We know that police are never going to be able to make arrests in most cases. Um, a lot of people don't report it. By the time people report it, whoever did it is long gone. Um, even when people get videos of it, usually the folks committing these crimes are, are wearing masks and, and, and hoods, using fake license plates on the car. Really, really difficult cases uh, for police to make arrests. And that's why arrest rates have been about 2% for the last several years. Um, so what we're doing is we're actually trying to um, map out and dismantle the networks that buy and sell the stolen goods, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, if we can take away the, the 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 liquidity in the marketplace for these stolen goods, if people who break into cars and steal stuff can't sell it and convert it to money, um, they're going to do it less often. And so we're trying to focus on people who are further downstream, who are really creating the demand for stolen goods. Um, and I've got an organized retail theft task force in my office that's doing that work, both around auto burglaries and around other kinds of property crime. So the recall is going to come. Um, there's a, there are people like Ange and I that do a lot of reading and, and, and digging and talking to other people about things and trying to in, in, encourage people to read. Um, what do you want to encourage voters to do before the recall election? Honestly, just look at the facts. Like, get out there, get into the city, like walk around, be, be part of a city and like recognize that a lot of the changes that you're, that you're seeing have nothing to do with any policy. I wish it was so easy for a district attorney to snap their fingers and eliminate opioid overdoses or eliminate um, the housing crisis. There is no jurisdiction in this country that has solved those problems. So educate yourself, look at the facts, look at the data, look at what we have actually done and compare San Francisco in the last two years under my leadership to other cities like Oakland or San Jose or uh, Chicago or Philadelphia or Atlanta or Houston. The fact of the matter is uh, crime is way less of a problem in San Francisco than in those other cities. Serious violent crime is way less of a problem in San Francisco than in other cities. And we are being creative and proactive. We are implementing policies that reflect San Francisco values, like refusing to prosecute kids as adults, like refusing to cooperate with immigration, like creating a worker protection unit, like ending uh, money bail, like creating an independent innocence commission to ensure that no one who's wrongfully convicted is languishing behind bars. We are doing things that promote safety, that build trust between communities impacted by crime, and that help restore the dignity and the integrity of our criminal justice system. Take a look at the facts. Do not allow the fear mongers or the Mm. police union operatives to distract you from what's really happening in the community and in the courthouse. 
Yes, thank you. And and what are your most important steps moving forward? What are you most focused on? And and also, you know, there's always going to be room for improvement. Where do you think you have room for, okay, I need to push harder when it comes to this certain thing? You know, I, I campaigned in 2019 on really three core promises. And those are the things I'm still focused on. You know, the first one is investing more resources in healing and supporting survivors of crime. Regardless of whether police make an arrest, we need to step up and help anyone who has been harmed by crime. And we've presided over a historic expansion of My Victim Services Unit, including the first ever Cantonese-speaking director of victim services. Uh, second, secondly, we need to make sure that we're not simply relying on jails and prisons to solve social problems, right? We need to look at root causes of crime. We need to expand access to housing, mental health care. We need to partner with community-based reentry organizations to ensure everybody getting out of jail or prison has a safe plan with the support and the structure they need to avoid reoffending and coming back into the system. And third, and critically, we need our justice system to be just. That means we can't incarcerate people simply because they're poor, which is what money bail does. It means we can't allow police to kill with impunity, even if it's the exceptional case. We can't allow corporations to steal billions of dollars in wage theft from their employees. In other words, we need to use the power of this office, the power of the people who elected me and who I represent every day to do justice, to enforce the law equally without regard to skin color or uh, how much money someone has in the bank or whether or not they wear a uniform when they show up to work. Those are the things that we've begun to do. We've laid the groundwork. We've built a foundation. Um, And I'm really excited in my second half of my first term, right? I'm not even halfway into my first term. Uh, And here we are doing this over Zoom. We're living our lives over Zoom. I am really excited as we reopen to be able to continue to deliver on those core promises to the people of San Francisco. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I know you're super busy and have uh, multiple things to juggle. Um, SF District Attorney Chase Boudin, thanks for being on Bitch Talk. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ange. Great to speak with you and um, keep, keep up the great conversations. I look forward to coming back on the show. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.